Welcome to Politics in Question, the podcast where we talk about our political institutions, how they are failing, and how we might fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, Senior Fellow at New America. Today we have something different, something special. Myself and our co-host, Julia Azari, recently participated in a panel discussion on how we might move beyond winner-take-all elections and why we might want to do that, which was co-sponsored by New America, Protect Democracy, and Fix Our House, an organization that I started to advance proportional representation. And, well, we thought you all might enjoy this panel, which uh, I think was quite wonderful and informative, uh, featuring a few other political scientists, Brendan Nyhan, Liliana Mason, Jennifer Victor, and uh, the law professor Aziz Huck. So, enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our panel. We've got a great panel here this morning. I'm Julia Azari. I will be moderating this panel. I'm a professor at Marquette University. So we are going to be uh, talking about proportional representation this morning. So um, this will be a special episode of the podcast Politics in Question. It'll be a conversation between a panel of democracy scholars brought to you by Fix Our House, New America, and Protect Democracy. So I'm Julia Azari. I'm a professor of political science at Marquette University. I co-host Politics in Question along with Lee Drutman, who's joining us today as well and James Walner of R Street. So we're gonna begin this morning by hearing from our panelists. As they give their opening remarks, we'll accept questions from the audience. You can submit your questions via Zoom's chat feature. I'm really pleased this morning to introduce our distinguished panelists. Well, first, we've got Brendan Nyan, the James O. Friedman Presidential Professor in the Department of Government at Dartmouth College. He's a co-founder of Brightline Watch, a watchdog group that monitors the status of American democracy, and he's a contributing writer for multiple publications. During the mid-2000s, he co-authored the New York Times bestselling All the President's Spin and was a co-founder and editor of Spin Sanity, a nonpartisan watchdog of political spin leading up to his research on fake news during and after the 2016 election. Next, we've got Liliana Mason an SNF Agora Institute Associate Professor of Political Science at Johns Hopkins University. She's the author of two books, Radical American Partisanship, Mapping Violent Hostility, Its Causes and the Consequences for Democracy, which she co-authored with Nathan P. Calmo, and Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. Her timely and crucial research on partisan identity, partisan bias, social sorting, and American social polarization has been published in journals such as the American Political Science Review, American Journal of Political Science, and in media outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, and NPR. Aziz Hook is the Frank and Bernice J. Greenberg Professor of Law at the University of Chicago. He previously worked as director of the Brennan Center's Liberty and National Security Project, litigating cases in both the U.S. Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court. As a senior as a senior consultant analyst for the International Crisis Group, he's researched and wrote on constitutional design and implementation in Pakistan, Nepal, Afghanistan, and Sri Lanka. He was a law clerk for Judge Robert D. Sack of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, and then for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Jennifer Victor 
is a professor at the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, where she studies the U.S. Congress, legislative organization and behavior, social network methods, political parties, and related topics. She's the author, along with Niels Ringa, of Bridging the Information Gap, Legislative Member Organizations as Social Networks in the United States and the European Union. She serves on the board of directors of the Nonpartisan Center for Responsive Politics and is the past president of the National Capital Area Political Science Association and is the past chair of the organized, absolute organized section on political networks. We will also hear remarks from Lee Drutman, normally my co-host of Politics in Question. Lee is the author of Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. He is a senior fellow at New America and a co-founder of Fix Our House, two of the three organizations that are sponsoring this event today, along with Protect Democracy. Thanks in advance to our panelists for sharing your time and expertise with us today. So we'll hear remarks from each, followed by Q&A. Um, again, you can submit your questions for any of our speakers via the Zoom chat at any time during the program. Please include your name, any affiliation you have, and to which speaker the question is directed. So I'm gonna turn this over to Lee Drutman to get us started talking about what proportional representation is and what we're, we're here to talk about today. Well, thank you, Julia. And it's great to be with our entire distinguished panel, really excited about this conversation. So I'll just kick this off with a little bit of framing about the election and uh, a little bit about what proportional representation could look like. So we, we just, had an election here, a midterm election, and democracy was on the ballot. And I think democracy did a little better than expected. Uh, so that is good. Turns out that Americans, for the most part, still like democracy. And exit surveys show that democracy was a top issue. President Biden spent a good amount of time right before the election trying to make democracy the central issue for the election. It seems like that was a smart decision. So that is all very encouraging. And I feel good about that, actually. Cautiously optimistic about the future of American democracy. But I think the other thing that we need to reconcile is that despite widespread dissatisfaction uh, with the status quo, Americans basically voted for the status quo, assuming Warnock and Murkowski win, not a single senator, incumbent senator will have lost only one seat flipped, despite about $17 billion, I think, being spent on this election. There was very little change. American politics remains extremely calcified. And most elections, most districts, most states were entirely uncompetitive. So really, we had this election in which very uh, few Americans actually counted. We had this still this binary political system in which Americans feel like the other party is a threat, is the enemy. I don't think we really have a, a full sense of legitimate opposition in this country anymore. And... Uh, this is a real danger to our democracy. Uh, now, I think that if we move to a system of proportional representation with proportional multi-member uh, districts, we would, one, see a voting system in which every voter counts equally, not just the people who live in swing districts. 
I, I think uh, we would have more than two parties, which would break what I've called the, the doom loop of escalating hatred and, and disdain and dehumanization and norm breaking. Uh, so proportional representation is a, a system of voting that is pretty much the norm throughout advanced democracies around the world. It takes a, a number of different forms uh, and the ideal form, you know, to me is probably about uh, five to seven member districts uh, with a modest threshold that would probably create space for five or six parties, uh, you know, not too many parties, not too few. Uh, and it's totally constitutional. Article one, section four gives Congress pretty strong powers to uh, determine how it's going to run its own elections. Now, you know, how, how politically feasible is it? We'll, we'll come to that at the end, but it, you know, proportional representation is not this crazy thing. It's you know, really is the norm among advanced democracies. So I'm excited to hear from everyone else. All right, so we're going to uh, turn now to Brendan Nyan, and here's here's what we're asking you to address for us. Threats of political violence in America are on the rise, which we've seen in recent headlines like the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi. Interestingly, I feel like this has really fallen out of the election narrative. Um, and before that, on January 6th, um, even a few years ago, we had the attack on, on Steve Scalise during the congressional um, baseball game. Um, recent studies show that Americans' hostility toward members of the opposing political party is only growing. How does zero-sum partisan conflict, like we've seen in a winner-take-all system, fan the flames of resentment and political violence and empower anti-democratic forces? Um, and I believe I'm supposed to let you have about three to five minutes, so I will I will cut you off <laughs> around five minutes. Brendan? Good morning. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, thanks, everyone, for, for having me. This is a really uh, important topic. Um, I'm, as, as Julie said earlier, I'm one of the organizers of a group called Brightline Watch that monitors the state of American democracy. And that's been a particularly uh, alarming task in the last few years. I think people have been reassured to some extent, as Lee suggested in his opening remarks, by the results of the election. But I've tried to be cautious in my optimism and to remind people that we're not out of the woods yet. Um, winning one election is not the same as stabilizing a democratic system that just faced an attempt to overturn the result of an election. And, you know, what could have been the beginnings of a, a violent, you know, insurrection. So this is a very serious matter. And of course, we won't solve all the problems in American of American democracy in this panel. But I do worry specifically about the dynamics Julie identified in her question that the zero-sum nature of American politics is feeding some of the worst, most dangerous and destructive tendencies we face and empowering some of the worst elements in our political system. So just starting at a very straightforward level, um, the two-party system we have now is strongly oriented around negative affect towards the other party. And that may in turn encourage many sorts of norm-violating behaviors or worse, the kind of violence that Julia referenced in her question, but even more, you know, which, you know, unfortunately seems to be a kind of threat, uh, likely to become a kind of recurring feature of American politics. But even more broadly than that, that zero sum nature of the other side is the enemy and we must 
prevent them from taking and holding power, that is a powerful force, I think, in um, encouraging people to excuse norm violations and misconduct on their side. That's obviously been a central dynamic in the failure to effectively coordinate against Donald Trump and eventually to accept him and allow him to take over the Republican Party. Um, and um, also a feature in how people can potentially start to question the democratic compact itself. It can become, it can seem intolerable to allow the other side to hold power, which of course is a central feature of democracy. If people reject that and seek to overturn elections, as we saw, our political system is in danger. So I worry that our politics are incredibly zero sum. The presidency of, is of course zero sum. We're not gonna be able to fix that without constitutional changes that are beyond the scope of what seems currently possible. But I think moving towards a proportional system in the way that we suggested that wouldn't require a constitutional change would start to break up some of these zero sum dynamics in an important way. And I wanna highlight in the last few seconds I have, some of the, I think the important second order effects that such a move would create. So I'm especially attuned to the importance of elites in the context we just described. People haven't heard enough from, um, and I'm speaking here about Republicans because that's where the threat to our democracy has been concentrated. People haven't heard enough from the Republicans who are alarmed and concerned about the threat to our democracy. Now, we've seen some people starting to poke their heads back out again after the election, but we've had a long period of essentially crickets, right? Where people who know better are failing to speak out, are failing to um, tell uh, you know the public to raise the alarm. And those, those messages are powerful when they're received, but we don't hear them enough. And the, I think a, a, a core fundamental reason for that is the electoral incentives are so powerful um, that the two-party system creates no space for the Mitt Romneys and folks like him to engage in a sustained kind of pro-democratic politics of the center right. And a proportional system would carve out space for those people and separate their fortunes from the far right in a really critical way. That in turn allows for, for instance, a center right party like might emerge in such a system to ally itself with other parties in order to defend democracy or exclude anti-democratic forces and uh, to sanction those um, who would violate democratic norms. So. There's a lot to be uh, figured out about how to move forward in this approach, but I'm encouraged about the possibilities of constraining some of the worst features of what we've seen in the last five years. Thanks. All right, thank you so much. So next up, we've got Liliana Mason. We're gonna talk here, I wanna sort of kick off by thinking about your, your 2018 book, Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. You talk about how Americans are extremely polarized today and often primarily driven by negative partisanship, by, by dislike of their uh, political opponent. Can you talk about how elections where there's only one winner, as in our single member winner-take-all districts, impact this kind of extreme polarization and division? Yes, thank you. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, right, so I'm going to actually... Um... I'm going to talk a little bit about sort of the psychology of being a partisan and a voter. And basically what, you know, sort of the way that the way that political psychologists think about how voters make decisions 
is to look back at these kind of really deeply rooted human needs to see their group be victorious. And, you know, we naturally form human social social groups. Uh, we, we naturally create an in-group and out-groups. This is just sort of a thing that humans tend to do. It is the, the bedrock of all civilization, right? It makes sense that we do this. Uh, and, and yet, when we are talking about contemporary American politics, we can get into some pretty dicey situations like we are in right now, where over the last 50 years, the Democratic and Republican parties have become very socially different from one another in that the Republican Party has become increasingly predominantly white, uh, Christian, rural, you know, the gender gap is increasing, so it's increasingly male. And so, and the Democratic Party has is sort of just everyone else. And, and what that's done to us psychologically is that you know, an election is a regularly scheduled status competition. And when we engage in uh, electoral politics, we are choosing which side we want to win. And we are emotionally invested in the outcome of that. So if our team wins, we feel good. And if the other team wins, we feel bad. But because of this social uh, and cultural sorting that's happened, now all of these other identities have become associated with whether our party wins or loses. So it's not just our sense of our party's status, but it's our sense of our racial group's status, our religion's status. All of these things that are that are extremely deeply rooted and important to us as individuals become associated with the outcome of the election. And what that does is it creates incentives for people to want to win at all costs. So if they're, if the other party wins, then all of these parts of us are losing. And it feels pretty devastating and the, and the outcomes seem very dire. And so one of the things that the two-party system has done is, is really reinforced uh, this perception that if the other party loses, all of my whole sense of who I am is under threat. And what we know is that in other countries, in European countries that have multi-party systems, for example, uh, the sort of hatred of the other party tends to be lower, partly because when you have a multi-party system, you have uh, people, you know, parties are forced to form coalition governments, which means that other parties are sometimes part of us and sometimes part of them. And if they are ever, if they ever have been part of the in-group identity, it's easier to feel friendly towards them. It's easier to trust them, to consider, to think of them as, you know, full human and, and not evil. But when we're constantly seeing the other party as the enemy, it makes it very difficult for voters to ever kind of be open and, and conscientious about the, the humanity and the, and the potential for compromise or collaboration with people in the other party. Um, so if we were able to have sort of to break this constant us versus them, Democrats versus Republicans psychology, that may provide a path forward where we might be able to have more productive conversations uh, with people in other parties that we can sort of find ways to work with and make it less clear who our enemies are and more, more important to sort of think about what legislation do we want to pass and who does that help rather than am I winning or am I losing, which is really the way that the media tends to cover all politics in the U.S. right now. Great. Thank you so much. I turn now to Aziz Hook. Uh, you've written that any approach to political equality that depends on the courts is a losing battle because most tools in the Democratic Reformer Toolkit, from regulating gerrymandering to enforcing voting rights to attempting to limit money in politics, are more, more vulnerable to litigation than ever before. Can you uh, expand a little bit on what that means and how changing our electoral system could help to protect political equality? 
Sure. Thanks very much, Julian. Thanks very much to uh, Lee and to Protect Democracy and others at Fix the House, Fix Our House for um, putting together this panel. I think it is a common assumption in our political culture that the federal courts are a backstop that protects legal norms and therefore democratic norms. That assumption is reflected, for example, in the uh, draft uh, Electoral Count Act uh, legislation that will be likely considered this uh, lame duck session, which uh, creates a judicial mechanism for resolving disputes about uh, presidential electoral uh, counts. That assumption, though, I think is profoundly flawed. Picking up on something that Brendan said, um, I think it is better to think about the role of the courts in respect to our polity as fundamentally destabilizing and contracting in relation to the window of democratic opportunity and participation. And so reform uh, has to work around the obstacles created by the judiciary. Let me give uh, four, enumerate quickly, four examples of case law that does that. And then let me say why I think those, those lines of cases have uh, arisen. So over the past two decades, first of all, uh, the Rehnquist and the Roberts Court have elaborated a series of doctrines that make it increasingly easy for states to directly limit the right to vote. This goes back to a decision called Crawford, uh, in which the court authorized the use of voter ID based upon empirical assumptions about the frequency of voter fraud that were uh, themselves uh, at best contentious, uh, probably more accurately stated false, up to uh, a decision last year on vote denial claims under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which were essentially extinguished by the court's reading of that statute. In, in this line of cases, the court has made it easier and easier uh, for states to deny or to pick out groups and to deny them uh, the right to vote. A second uh, line of cases concerns the court's hostility to uh, efforts toward nonpartisan redistricting. Uh, obviously, the court has declined to intervene to limit partisan redistricting or partisan gerrymandering, even as it's recognized that partisan gerrymandering may violate both the Equal Protection Clause and perhaps uh, the First Amendment. Uh, we are likely to see a decision in uh, a case called Moore v. Hartman later on this year or next year, in which the court expands the authority of state legislatures to act in ways that override state constitutional constrictions on partisan gerrymandering, and that may place out of reach independent redistricting commissions that almost a dozen or more states have adopted as a solution to partisan gerrymanders. So that's the second uh, uh, line of cases. Uh, the third line of cases touches upon the themes that Liliana has identified. Um, since the early 1980s, the Supreme Court has been an entrepreneur on the national level of the kind of polarized identity politics that Liliana has described. 
in cases from the late 1970s and early 1980s, uh, the court has described first racial uh, dynamics, and now increasingly uh, competition over religious identity in terms of zero-sum competition between groups. Uh, this, this is exactly the kind of binary contestation that leads to the pernicious politics that uh, we're all, I think, uh, resistant to. Um, a quick word on why this is happening. The court has been majority Republican since the early 1970s. However, the mechanism through which uh, judges are appointed through the Senate through the, the presidential nomination and the Senate confirmation process means that the selection of judges is highly sensitive to the state of constitutional thinking within uh, whatever the dominant partisan coalition is at the time. Uh, moreover, since the 1980s, a thick network of non-governmental groups, uh, think tanks and advocacy organizations, particularly on the right, has emerged uh, to generate ideas about what constitutional law should look like and discipline judges and lawyers uh, for straying from that orthodoxy. The result is, uh, particularly in the last decade, and we've seen uh, a dramatic shift uh, because of President, former President Trump's three appointees, is a is not just a, a court that leans to the right. That's been true since the early 1970s, but a court that is highly sensitive to the policy interests and the perceived cultural concerns of uh, particular tranches of the Republican coalition. Uh, that the individual justices are tightly networked into. This is a, a quite different institution from the abstract and idealized independent court that many voters have in mind. And it operates as a bulwark against many forms of democratic reform that one can imagine. Uh, and, and I'll close just by saying that Many of the proposals that Fix Our House uh, and others have pressed with respect to proportional representation are importantly attractive because they do not uh, fall victim to any, or they're not vulnerable uh, to any of the counter-democratic pressures that the court, counter-democratic levers that the court has at its disposal. Thank you so much. We turn now to Jennifer Victor. You've recently told Voice of America that the, the more Americans live in places where they feel like their political identity doesn't match the majority or doesn't match the trends in their areas, the more disconnected they feel from their government and the more unrepresented they feel. And that can be one component of the destabilization in a democracy. Partisan gerrymandering rightly gets a lot of negative attention for exacerbating this problem. But there are other factors like natural geographic sorting, where people move to areas where people who think and vote more like them, that make elections uncompetitive and make gerrymandering easier. Can you talk about how gerrymandering and uncompetitiveness are affected by our system where congressional districts have only one representative and how these problems might be addressed by multi-member districts and proportional representation? Yeah, I think I can be honest <laughs> and say that I have been slow to come around to focusing on gerrymandering as one of our most problematic problems, right? Because there's been a fair amount of political science 
evidence over the last number of decades that suggested that while gerrymandering may be problematic in certain with respect to certain kinds of democratic concerns, um, it hasn't been a chief source of polarization, which has been one of the key things that a, a lot of scholars had been focused on over the last decade or so. But my view of this has softened to some extent as uh, we have moved into an era where we now have more explicit partisan gerrymandering going on. It's hard not to think of a state like Wisconsin, where you are, Julia, uh, when we think about partisan gerrymandering and the role that the court has played in um, sort of maybe a benign neglect of recognizing uh, the, the consequences for democracy uh, for allowing partisan gerrymandering to go on. But I think the key issue here that you raised in your question has to do with people's sense of political efficacy. Um, in terms of how represented they feel by the elected people um, who are in power. And as, as Lily was describing, as people's sense of partisanship is more closely correlated with these other aspects of their identity, including geography, and as we see more of that sorting, then this sense of sorting and living near people who are like me and then if if that side loses, if we are not the majority or something like that, then people lose this sense of connection and they lose this is likely connected to people's sense of declining trust in political institutions and their willingness to to go to to support extremism for to protect that sense of status threat. But I guess I think the direction that I would like to some of some of the related issues here that, that I'm interested in raising is that um, while polarization, partisan polarization has been an increasing problem, both in among political elites, elected people and in the in the public, it in some sense is not our only problem and may not be our largest problem. I think the the biggest threat to US democracy right now is the number of both elite candidates and then voters who essentially don't favor democracy anymore, who are essentially attracted to um, anti-democratic forms of government as a way of protecting that sense of status threat. And so, and if we look at this last election, where maybe to, to somewhat of a surprise, we had more sort of traditional Republicans who are conservative, but still follow democratic values. We had more of those candidates win. Um, we had a lot of anti-democratic, small d, extremist candidates uh, not win. And the idea that, um, you know, some, some of the evidence, I'm, it'll be a while before we could, I think, fully analyze this last election, but some of the running hypotheses that I think people are going to be looking at are that, to some extent, this idea that I think it was either Lee or Brendan was talking about where democracy was on the ballot and Democrats were pushing that idea that democracy was on the ballot and that that perhaps had some kind of uh, positive messaging effect. But then also um, a lot of evidence coming out about the effect of abortion and that the states where abortion was on the ballot seemed to turn out voters who uh, were interested in um, either protecting or not quashing uh, reproductive rights. Um, and so to me, all of that says that there is an appetite against extremism in the United States. So that this, the umbrella of those issues to me is that the extent to which in the 2016 election, many of us were surprised by the number of Americans who were willing to vote for something that uh, political scientists at least saw as extreme. Maybe more people are 
aware of of some of that extremism or at least motivated to um, to not help encourage it. Um, the other issue that I wanted to raise here that I think is relevant to your question, Julia, is about the role of campaign finance. Um, so there's, I think, maybe weak or moderate evidence in the political science literature about the relationship between how our campaign finance laws work and the effect of polarization and political extremism um, in our in our politics. And to the extent that this relationship is at least correlational, um, if not causal, I'm particularly interested in the extent to which we have seen what I think of as campaign inflation over the last several cycles. We're like practically doubling the amount of money going into campaigns at the federal level, but then also at the state levels. Um, and so if we think of this like an economist, inflation is too much money chasing too few goods, right? So campaign inflation, in my mind, is too much money in the system, like too many donors chasing too few candidates. So one of the aspects of the Fix Our House strategy that um, I know we spent a lot of time talking about proportional representation, but one of the aspects that I'm really interested in is the idea of increasing the size of the House, increasing the number of representatives um, overall in the chamber and the number of representatives that people feel are representing them um, at a local level, which I think could potentially affect this campaign inflation issue. If, if the issue, if, if part of the problem is sort of too much money in the money supply chasing too few candidates, well, you increase the size of the house, now all of a sudden you've got more candidates. I think, you know, lack of regulation there is just going to exacerbate that problem in the end anyway, but, uh, but I think it's, it's, an, uh, it's a complicating factor in this whole scenario that is worth looking at. So those are, those are I guess, my, my initial thoughts. Okay, great. Thank you so much. All right. So we're going to turn it back to Lee. Um, we've, we've heard about challenges within the current electoral system and the political system more broadly, um, and how proportional representation might potentially help. So what, what we want to turn to now is feasibility. Is a change this significant politically possible in this divided and some would perhaps describe it as dysfunctional moment in our politics? What would it take to be to move toward proportional representation in the United States? That is the big question. I mean, the, the sort of knee-jerk response is, why would the parties in power ever do something like this? Why would politicians elected under uh, a system uh, that they got elected under want to change that system? Uh, and the answer is usually they wouldn't. But these are kind of extraordinary times in a number of ways. Uh, one is just the level of dissatisfaction and frustration with the political system that includes a lot of people who are inside the political system. I mean, most members of Congress, I think, would say our system is dysfunctional uh, and maybe we ought to find some better ways to make that work. I think when we think about political parties, what are political parties? They're just coalitions of groups and factions that have joined together to win elections. But I think many people within both political parties feel like the party as a whole isn't really the party that they want. I, I look at the results from midterms and there was an interesting YouGov poll that only about a third of 
Democrats thought that Democrats' strategy in 2022 was the right strategy for 2024. Only about a third of Republicans thought the Republican strategy in 2022 was the right strategy for 2024. Uh, Two-thirds of Americans say they want more political parties. So there's definitely demand for it, from the for more choices from the public. There's definitely frustration uh, among politicians. And also there's this constant anxiety about how just a few votes here, a few votes there could swing power entirely in one way or entirely in the other way. And if you look at countries that enacted proportional representation in Western Europe from 1899 to 1912, a lot of the story there was about politicians in power saying, look, the, the, the swings are so wild in our current system that a proportional representation system is, is actually more of a compromise where the, the levels uh, of power are not going to change all that much if we do things proportionally, rather than in this majoritarian way in which 51% here versus 49% can suddenly change power in very dramatic ways. So as I mentioned at the beginning, Congress could do this through ordinary legislation, uh, probably more likely would be first passing legislation that would allow states to experiment with various approaches to proportional representation by repealing a 1967 law that requires single member districts, which was put in place to ensure that states didn't move to at-large districting uh, block voting, which is extremely hyper-majoritarian. So this would have to ensure that proportionality is maintained. Otherwise, there, I think, would be tremendous disenfranchisement of minority voters. But it's hard to see how the status quo continues forever, right? I mean, the things that can't go on forever don't go on forever. And if you look at the broad cycles of American democracy, every 60 years or so, we go through these periods in which we reevaluate the bargain of our democracy. So the last one was about 60 years ago, from the mid-60s to the early 70s, major civil rights, the legislation, then a whole host of good government right, reforms put in place before that progressive era, in which we fundamentally changed how we uh, elect members of the Senate, direct elections, direct primaries, uh, women's suffrage. Before that, the 1830s, which was the kind of development of, of mass political parties. Before that, the revolution, uh, which was a, a major change. So you know, th there are these moments in which the, the bargains of American democracy shift because our expectations of what democracy demands change as society changes as we encounter problems and you know, nothing lasts forever. Feels like things are stuck right now, but things that are stuck eventually get unstuck. All right. So many thanks to all of our panelists. I think we're going to turn now to a few audience questions. We're going to kick off with a question from Alan Durning, the director of Sightline Institute in Seattle. He says, Sightline is the largest progressive think tank in the Pacific Northwest and runs the largest democracy reform research and advocacy program on the West Coast. We campaigned for proportional representation in British Columbia in 2018 unsuccessfully and helped win proportional representation in Portland, Oregon last week after five years of work. My fix and fo focus and fixation, he says, and my question is what are the best tactics and strategies for winning proportional representation in the United States, whether at the federal level or at local and state levels? And Yes, that question can be for, for any of our panelists who want to jump in. Can I jump in there uh, first? So let me start by saying 
to to the questioner to Alan, like, thank you. Like, just keep doing what you're doing, which might be a completely dissatisfying answer to what you want to hear. But the way that I think about achieving reform of the type of reform that Fixer House is talking about is that there's two big buckets of ways to make major change in the United States. We can either do massive institutional reform of the type we're talking about, where you, you know, increase the size of the house and switch the whole thing to proportional representation and so forth. Like this is pretty massive change. Or you can do more, much more local level, granular level, social movement level, neighborhood level kind of community uh, reforms that eventually perhaps bubble up. And I think if you look at the history of basically any reform movement in the United States, history tells us that it always starts at the local level, right? The suffrage movement, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the environmental movement, like all of these big reforms that eventually result in massive pieces of legislation. And, and when you get big things like the Clean Air Act and the civil rights movement and the 19th Amendment and stuff like that, we focus on those big reform things that happen. But all of those big reforms are preceded by decades of, you know, local level movements. Um, and so I think the more that we focus on what's going on in our own communities and supporting organizations at local levels, you know, start putting a spotlight on the dozen or so states that are using proportional representation in their state legislatures in some forms, um, making it more familiar to people and less foreign uh, at the, the level at which they can relate um, in their own lives, I think is is some of the most important work that we can do. Do any of the other panelists want to jump in on this question? Well, I, I mean, the, the other broad point is that, you know, the, our, our sense of what's possible is ultimately a collective judgment uh, and that you know, if we decide that something seems like it can't happen then that becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy whereas I, I really think we are in a moment in which there's just a tremendous expansion of of what we think ought to be possible uh, and uh, it's a moment for for really expanding our imagination. And that's, I think, on all of us. Can I add one more thing, which is just that I think one one element of, of potential optimism or a little bit of hope is that we saw a lot more split ticket voting in this election than we have seen in a really long time. Um, and so there were people that were um, you know, voting for their party for one uh, for one election and voting for the other party in a different election or just not, or not voting at all or voting for Republicans, but also for abortion access. And that actually displays a little bit more flexibility than we expected to see uh, that we've seen in, in a while in the American electorate. And 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 does suggest that there might be some open some a little bit of an opening there for for voters to to start to support something slightly different. Thank you so much. All right. Um... Let's move to our next question. Um, this is for Brendan from Nancy, an indivisible group leader in Oakland, California. What do you think the factors are behind the midterms that revert to relatively normal Republicans with mega Republicans conceding their races? So what do you think are, are the factors leading to this sort of maybe return to kind of normal Democratic behavior, small d Democratic behavior, Brendan? Yeah, it's a great question. And I love to hear people's ideas. I've heard accounts suggesting that these results suggest that maybe this phenomenon was more Trump specific than we fear, 
right? So that's one possibility that keeping Trump off, uh, the deplatforming of Trump on social media prevented the kind of coordinating mechanism that helped give fuel to this election uh, overturning movement. The fact that it's a midterm, people were less energized and mobilized. It may be the Republicans weren't coordinated around this outcome as fraudulent because they were expecting to do well. And so that kind of broke up the coordination dynamics we saw in 2020. And then finally, it may be that the intra-party uh, incentives to knife Trump in the aftermath of this outweighed the incentives to go after the results. So lots of people who might have spoken up and amplified the fraud claims are kind of keeping their powder dry or saying, this is why we have to change direction. I don't know that we can adjudicate those stories now, but I'm, I I do think it's a, it's a better than expected outcome. We'll see what happens with Carrie Lake, but in general, so far, so good. I would add that the uh, apparent correlation of when elections have been the most challenged um, on these grounds is when Trump is on the ballot. So Trump not literally being on the ballot in this election may be affecting the way that people are reacting to it. There's some evidence in the partisan, you know, the party history of the United States that when parties lose three elections in the row in a row, that's when they start to finally change their tack a bit. And I'm I'm a little still on the fence about whether or not uh, we should put this election in the loss column for Republicans, because after all, they probably are going to own the House of Representatives, <laughs> maybe only by a two seat majority, which is going to make things awfully interesting. And we may not see majority control be consistent over this Congress, which would be really interesting. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. All right, we've got a third question here. Vernetta says, our republic is undemocratic from its founding. Since the powerful factions of the two-party system are so strongly motivated to maintain the status quo, how do we move to proportional representation? Especially since the electorate tends to vote against its own interests in favor of the maintenance of a racialized caste system. Lily? Well, just one thing that is, is that the you know, the, the sorting process that I talked about earlier is really has kind of like isolated white supremacy in one party, which is bad because there's an entire party that, that is pushing for white supremacy. But it's but it could be also good because there's an entire political party that's actually trying to move in a, in a more progressive direction. And it's not even that the entire Republican Party is you know, pushing for this. There's there's growing evidence that the, the sort of MAGA Republicans are not a majority of the Republican Party and are really only about 15 percent of the American electorate. And so our, our two-party system actually gives them way more power uh, just because of Republican loyalty to the party, gives that voice, that sort of push towards, they, they tend to be more anti-democracy in their attitudes, they tend to hold more racist beliefs, they tend to endorse political violence more than, than other Republicans even. And so, so the you know the idea of having more parties would actually isolate that that group into its own far right wing extreme sort of fringe party, which would never be more than fifteen percent of the electorate, and and allow our our government to sort of move forward hopefully um, and make more progress without without this fifteen percent of Americans able to hijack the whole thing. I can take up this question of the undemocratic constitution. I think a helpful way of conceptualizing or, or thinking about that is by comparing two different ways of thinking about what the law is or what particularly the constitution is. Uh, one view would say, look, the constitution is, is fixed. It's a specific set of rules and we know what those rules are. The other way of thinking about it is, is to say, no, that the, the constitution is not fixed. It's a set of general 
often quite general principles are often quite vague or unworked out institutional arrangements that, that allow for a range of different possibilities. So you can think about the constitution as fixed, or you can think about it as a range. I think the question assumes uh, the, that, that we should think about the constitution as fixed, and we should think about it as fixed in its least democratic uh, qualities. And the, I, there's no reason for us to take that view of the Constitution. There's no reason for us to ignore the ambiguities, the internal contradictions, the aspirations toward greater rather than lesser democracy that occur or that are manifest in several of its provisions. The move toward fixity, the move toward collapsing uh, our sense of constitutional possibility into what they were uh, perceived to be among particularly white elites in the 1790s has a name. It's called originalism. And there's no need to uh, acquiesce to that, what I think is now clearly a partisan form of constitutional interpretation. I, I want to add just one one note there before you go to the next one, which is to recognize that white supremacy has essentially always had a political home in the United States. And it has throughout our history, most of the time been associated with one political party or the other. It has varied which party, but um, it, it has never been fully exterminated from our partisanship. And the historical record would suggest that the way to continue to try to make the, the policy efforts that are required to, to quash it or to excise it out of parties is to continue the type of social movement reforms that have been you know, successful in the past. But I say successful because they did achieve goals, but you, know, you think about how long it took the decades and decades of fighting for anti-lynching laws until you finally, you know, get something passed in the 1920s and, and then uh, a long, long road to get to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And so it's it's not that it is easy work uh, or or that it's, um, you know, something that is just comes around kind of magically, but it, it does, you know, take this um, very intricate work of social movements that is presumably easier perhaps to do these days, the way that our technology works and the way that our political organizing works um, than it was a hundred years ago. But, uh, you know, there, we have our own challenges too. Yeah. I just want to point out that the, the anti-lynching law passed the house in the 1920s. It passed the Senate over the summer. Um, so the 2020s. Um, so illustrate the, the uphill climb of these movements. So the, the fourth question here is for Aziz Hook. Electoral reform in the form of a single seat ranked choice, choice voting has been held up because of legal clauses in state constitutions and city charters requiring election by majority or plurality. Can multi-seat PR reforms get around this at local and state levels without resort to charter amendments or constitutional amendments? Do state Supreme Courts present the same sort of problem as the US Supreme Court? I think the way to think about, or the way to conceptualize uh, advancing PR at the national level in light of what the question accurately describes as 
provisions in various municipal charters or state constitutions, and state constitutions are relevant because they generally set out what are called the provisions for home rule, home rule being the terms under which uh, large uh, cities, Chicago, New York, et cetera, can exercise self-government. Um, I think the way to think about this is that, yes, there are going to be uh, instances in which there are legal barriers to uh, reform, uh, say that we're absent in the Portland case. As a national movement, uh, what uh, advocates of PR have to do is to identify those jurisdictions, either in which those uh, barriers don't exist, or in which the uh, amendment of a state constitution is feasible without a great deal of political labor. Uh, state constitutional amendment rules vary dramatically. And unlike the federal constitution, there are many state constitutions that, that allow relatively straightforward textual uh, amendment in the absence of supermajorities. So in some instances, the barriers that the questioner, I, I think, accurately identifies are not going to be uh, constraining. The aim should not be to try, I think, to implement PR in every jurisdiction immediately, the aim should be, uh, as we've seen with ranked choice voting and, and perhaps now with PR in places like Portland, uh, is to demonstrate that this is not just uh, a theoretical possibility, but one that is eminently compatible with uh, American political life. Right? We've, we've forgotten that there used to be forms of PR in the early 1800s, and the restoration of its possibility as a practical matter through test cases is is really important, even if it cannot be implemented uh, across the map. The last point that the question makes about uh, state Supreme Courts is very well taken, particularly given the results in Ohio and North Carolina, where you have supermajorities uh, of Republicans elected to courts that have been very important in the redistricting context. Absolutely. Um, state Supreme Courts particularly when they are packed, are going to be uh, instruments of potential democratic regression at the state level. Uh, we've seen this very graphically in Julia State uh, in Wisconsin, where the state Supreme Court's been um, active in uh, troubling ways, uh, particularly in the pandemic era uh, cases. You know, there even in states like Wisconsin, however, um, in April, there will be an election for a state Supreme Court judge. That election, I think, will be uh, competitive. And I think that there is a powerful argument to be had to appoint a judge who is not partisan minded in, in ways that foreclose democratic reform. Um, and uh, you know, maybe it's foolish to be hopeful for an election in the off cycle, but so, but I have some optimism for that election. Thank you so much. I can assure you that folks are already starting to organize around that election with those those very sorts of events in mind. Um, so we have time for one last question. We're going to take a question from Andrew Doty from uh, the Rebuild Congress Initiative. He says, I would imagine some issue activists could see PR as a distraction or diversion from the issues they care most about, stopping climate change, building racial equity, abortion rights. Is that a criticism you've encountered? And how would you respond to it? Maybe, Lee, you want to kick us off? Look, I mean, I think these are all important issues. And we don't need to, to think of these as zero sum uh, in the kind of attention space. 
although it, I can understand why somebody might. Uh, you know, I, I think on any of these issues, take abortion, uh, you know, I, I think there's a broad compromise position that I think if we had a uh, multi-party system organized around compromise, we could find a, a reasonable compromise that I think most Americans would feel comfortable with. But because this is uh, an issue that both parties have wanted to use as a wedge issue at various times, uh, it becomes harder to find a compromise position on this on climate. Another issue where I think you would see broad support for investing in uh, reducing our, our carbon output and looking at, at polling. You know, I think for most, most measures, I see 70, 75% support, but it's a an issue that Democrats overwhelmingly support and Republicans are more divided on. Again, if this wasn't a binary political issue in which Republicans had to take the anti-climate position and they just had to be reflexively against investing in carbon reduction because that's what Democrats stand for, I think we'd see tremendous progress on these issues. I think there's a compromise on immigration uh, that we would find. I think a a lot of our issues are more unnecessarily divisive than they actually need to be just because uh, different parties see them as potential electoral wedge issues rather than issues to resolve. And nobody wants to be seen as giving the other side a win. All right. So I want to thank all of our, first our our audience. Uh, We had a bunch of great, great questions that um, we aren't going to be able to answer. Fix fix Our House and Protect Democracy are going to reach out and address some of those questions in the coming days. I really want to thank our panelists, Brendan, Liliana, Aziz, and Jennifer for speaking with us today. Any journalists who are present, you can feel free to use these responses in your reporting and please reach out to us afterwards if you have any follow-up questions. You can reach uh, Fix Our House by email at, at uh, press at fixourhouse.org or protect democracy at press at protectdemocracy.org. Thank you so much, everyone, again for joining us. Well, that was the Zoom panel discussion. Now, as a podcast, we hope you enjoyed listening to it, and we'll be back with our regularly scheduled conversation next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.